Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This episode is brought to you by Sock Club. They're delivering the perfect <laughs> gift experience. Quality American-made socks sent straight to your loved one's door featuring different designs and a personal note every month. This is the gift that keeps on giving. The patterns are stylish and fun, just the right splash of color, even in your most serious business suit. Go to SockClub.com and get 15% off using discount code CRIME at checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, we're back after a whole bunch of stuff went down. We'll get around the horn for all the latest true crime updates about Bo Bergdahl, a potential serial season three, my trip to visit the Undisclosed crew, and more. We'll also get into one of the most popular new crime podcasts out there, Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? Joining me to get that done is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, just because we were off the air for two weeks doesn't mean you should leave the house for two weeks and leave me alone here. <laughs> what are you talking about? I was about? very lonely. <laughs> we were. I wasn't away for two weeks. It was not that long. And also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, certified cat lady, on her deathbed this evening, <laughs> Laura Bricker. Good evening, Laura. Thanks, Rebecca. You inspired me when you were sick and you went on, so I'm taking one for the team tonight. Yeah. The show must go on. Exactly. And finally, it's our favorite naysayer, the amazing noir novelist, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Howdy there, little lady. <laughs> Toby, you been watching Westworld or something? Uh, no. <laughs> Shucks, ma'am. Twerk nothing. I just, I, I realized I didn't have any foreign language That sounded pretty just, foreign to me. I just thought I'd say something like... Somewhat offensive. <laughs> Little lady. <laughs> Little lady. Well, Toby, speaking of offensive. Um, what? what the hell? <laughs> it's the holiday straight, straight season. <laughs> it is the holiday season. And I think some listeners have actually been doing their holiday shopping with the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. They have. In fact, listener Heather Wilson told us she did $750 worth oh of shopping with our link. Thank you, Heather. So, Toby, I was wondering, would you like to highlight any of the items that our listeners have purchased using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com? I could. All right, do it. Give us some sexy music first. That's it. Because if there's something that's sexy, it's 
Uncle Milton Ant Farm, Live Ant Habitat, Light Up Gel Colony. <laughs> Hot. Wait, does it come with ants? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's unclear. <laughs> you should have to like, send away for the ants, I think, right? They don't elaborate in the product description. All right, uh, number two. Frank Sinatra Carlton cards ornament swinging sound of Christmas crooners series. All right. I'm no idea sure what that, that means. Sounds, sounds very. Is um, it a Christmas ornament? Is that what it is? It's either a card, an ornament, or a CD. Oh. oh. A Mopa, which is copyrighted, Petty Perfect Foot File, electronic pedicure tool, Ooh. regular course blue. Also available in pink extra course. Ah, it's one of those like hand sanders that you get at Home Depot, but it's made for your heel. I actually really need it, that. It is. Yeah, oh, I really? was going to get one from my husband. It's actually, he has horrible feet. Ooh. Laura, have you ever tried that stuff called baby foot where you like smear it all over your feet and like all the skin peels off several days <laughs> yeah. later? You know what? I actually showed that to my husband and he was like, that's really bad. That's so bad for you. <laughs> it's awesome. and I'm, yeah. And I'm like, I mean, it was kind of freaky. Yeah, it's fun, though. Try it out. Yeah, you like guys it. are stepping all over my segment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Toby. Move aside. Annie's Homegrown Organic Bunny Fruit Snacks Variety Pack, 0.8 ounces, 24 count. Clean. God love Annie's. This is a disaster. I also recorded these, like, without the uh, peanut gallery. <laughs> I like this I version better. I emailed it to you a little while ago. All right. <laughs> Exploding Kittens. <laughs> Not safe for work edition. <laughs> Explicit content. Wow. Wow. What the, what in what category is that? Toys and games, of course. Hmm. Exploding kittens. Food. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh pet supplies, Y Song Archetype Quail Formula, Canine Feline Diet. 7.5 ounces. That's for when your dog is like really messed up digestive issues and can only eat very specific types of meat. Is that what it is? I just thought it was interesting that you could feed it to both cats or dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Denon AVR X 2300W 7.2 channel full 4K Ultra HD AV receiver with Bluetooth. Was that the most expensive item on the list, Toby? Yeah, that's a good guess. Yeah, I think it was. You know how I know that? Because I sorted them by price. Them by, by price. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we need to get Toby to read some of the high-end items, inspire our listeners. Well, I actually, I resorted them by category because <laughs> oh, it's it. easier to go through that way. And then, uh, and then I resorted them again by price because... So I should do like the A, B sorting first category, then price. I'll do that next time. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I, I can sort. Well, thanks to all of our listeners who did do some of their holiday shopping using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Go to our website right now. Get the rest of that holiday shopping done. You will be supporting this podcast when you do it. It doesn't cost you anything extra to do that. So thanks very much, Toby. And thanks very much to our listeners. So, Laura, something interesting happened a week or so ago. You and I almost had a run-in in a foreign city. Not foreign, <laughs> but a different city other than the ones that we live in. How, how Can you explain to our audience how that happened? Well, I happen to see, I think on Twitter or Facebook, I was flying into Pennsylvania, um, actually Baltimore to go to Pennsylvania for a family event. And I saw that you were still in the airport. You were eating crab cakes. And I was like, "Ooh, I love crab cakes. <laughs> so I was like, hey, are you still in the airport? And you were in like the gate, maybe two gates up for me. Um, so I went running along, but I saw the line going onto the plane. So we literally missed you by five minutes. Wow. And didn't you notice all the paparazzi that had <laughs> gathered? I'll yes. be honest with you. We actually were like, we had like an A30 seats. We were in the way back of the A line. So we weren't actually in the line when you walk by. We were at the 
Pinkberry frozen yogurt stand. <laughs> Did you see us running by? I can't believe I didn't. You were probably like right behind us running by. It was a really funny run in. I do love the mini crab cakes at the Baltimore airport. Shout out to them uh, for those mini crab cakes. I was in Baltimore for an event having to do with Undisclosed. I was there for yeah, the tell live. Tell us about this. I mean, you walked out of the house and I didn't see you for days. That's true. You didn't. So, as you guys know, I sort of have this remote relationship with the Undisclosed crew. I've never actually met any of them before. They were doing a live taping of their addendum show around their season two case at the New America Foundation in D.C. And um, they invited me to come and I kind of wanted to meet John Cryer. So <laughs> I decided to go and it ended up being amazing. I had dinner at Rabia Chaudhry's house and uh, Justin Brown, Adnan Syed's attorney, was there and his initial attorney, Chris Floor, was there. Uh, Susan Simpson was there. All these like unbelievable people were there. Of course, John Cryer was there. Rabia was there. And uh, Colin couldn't make it, huh? Colin couldn't make it. Mr. Beans the cat was there. Mm. Um, and then the oh, next Mr. night, we yeah, Mr. Beans is pretty rad. He he loves white people, as it turns out. As uh, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> Rabia was uh you know people were sort of chasing. Everybody wants to hold Mr. Beans, and he's just like a little bit you know people trying to chase a cat like they don't typically like that. And she was like, John, Rebecca, you you go get him. He loves white people. <laughs> My God, Rabia has a racist cat. I don't think he he just seems to love he seemed to love all the people there. But yeah, it was really great. I have to tell you, um, it is one thing to sort of know people from a project like Undisclosed or Serial. Rabia Chaudhry, I don't know if like you guys know this, is super duper nice. Like she she is not a hundred percent the character she pretends to be on social media. <laughs> She's sharp, quick witted, you know, sassy, all that stuff, but also really, really warm, really, really nice. And John Cryer was was pretty rad. It was fun to meet him. So it was a fun week. So you got to meet all the people that uh, are the voices on those podcasts. And earlier in the week, the four of us got together from this podcast. I want to know who drank more alcohol. Toby. But us as a group, the four of us. Oh. Not that big well, crew in Robbie Baltimore. is Muslim, so us, for sure. Okay. <laughs> she doesn't drink any alcohol. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Susan and uh, Dennis Robinson and I, you know, gave the four of us a run for our money. But I think that when the four of us were all together, I think Toby and my um, Moscow mule palooza mm. probably set the new record. And there so. were a lot of people who came who were fans of Crime Writers on. It had nice things to say about I'll tell you, one us. thing that happened that was so weird was that when we were at the New America Foundation for the event, at one point, I wasn't working. I was just there. Um, <laughs> and But I was by, you know backstage you know, with all the people. And then I sort of walked out into the audience just about to start. And people started clapping, like when I came out, as if anybody, like I was like, what are you clapping nice. for? What just happened? And I met super fans of this show, like super, su- people who don't listen to Undisclosed, but listen to our show, who came like hoping that I would be there or that one of us would be there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. It ha- That's pe- awesome. Yeah. They exist, guys. They exist. It was incredible. Well, big shout out to Washington and Baltimore uh, for representing. Yeah, I, we should do an event in D.C. It would be fun. Who would have thought this time of year, which is usually pretty quiet, would suddenly explode with all these true crime podcast updates? There are so many. What, Kevin? <clears throat> True crime podcast updates. All right, Kevin. So we've got a, like a, a big list of stuff to talk about. I'm going to start out with you, Toby. The Bo Bergdahl case. There was a very public call to give the serial season two subject Bo Bergdahl a pardon. Do you want to tell us about where that came from and how it's being received? Sure. It was in the New York Times on a Sunday. I guess it was last Sunday. It's a New York Times editorial, they, they start off by kind of giving a little bit of background 
And then they talk about how Trump had called him a dirty, rotten traitor in New Hampshire. And it kind of said in the old days he had been executed. And so then they asked the question, how how can he get a fair trial in the military justice system when the next commander in chief has proclaimed his guilt and accused him of treason? The short answer is he can't. They go on a little bit more. And then the, the final paragraph is where they get to it. It says, there's an alternative to a potentially drawn-out legal fight over Mr. Trump's incendiary remarks in the Bergdahl case. Mr. Obama could issue a pardon before he leaves office. That would put to rest a prosecution that was questionable from the outset because Sergeant Bergdahl had pre-existing mental health problems when the Army granted him a waiver to enlist. He emerged from captivity deeply traumatized after five years of being subjected to physical and psychological torture. It is time to let him rebuild his life. You know, we were watching this on Twitter and we kind of threw it out to our listeners. Okay, what do you think? And um, while there were some people who said, you know, the prosecution should continue, most people seem to be they were okay with the idea of a pardon. Maybe not so much because they're absolving all of Bo Bergdahl's actions, but maybe also just to kind of like just put an end to this, especially when it looks like, you know, he may spend a couple of months or up to a year in jail when he already spent four years in captivity. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's tough because I know I work in journalism. This is, the, this is one of those things that I feel uncomfortable necessarily like giving my strong opinion on. I do think there really is, though, something to the idea that it would be difficult to have fair proceedings given the rhetoric around him and given the person who's now sent into office. I mean, I covered the event I, on the web. You know, we had reporters at the event where those comments were made. And certainly, if I were the defense attorney in this case, um, I would be asking for the same thing. They so. seem to repeat a lot of what we heard James Wyrick say and, and the concerns of the defense. Exactly, team. exactly. Now, Laura, true crime update from you. Brendan Dassey, what the hell's going on with yeah. that poor kid? Uh, this poor kid. I mean, I just feel so bad for him. So Brendan Dassey was actually set to be released from prison. You recall his conviction was overturned in the summer by a lower court. And then less than 48 hours before he was set to be released, a panel for the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit granted the state's emergency motion to stay the order that would have had him released. There was no reasoning in the order. It just said, you know, granted. So we don't really know what went into that. And it said basically that this is stayed pending appeal. So who knows how long this is going to go on now. His attorneys posted online afterwards, we are disappointed more than words can say. The fight goes on. So the prosecutors in the case filed their challenge soon after a judge on last Monday ordered Dassey to be freed no later than Friday at 8 p.m. In the ruling granting his release, the judge had stated that Dassey didn't seem to pose a danger to the community and he was not likely to run away if he was released. So now he's going to remain behind bars, remain in jail while the state appeals his overturned conviction. Well, what really blows me away is the like emergency stay <laughs> What yeah. is the emergency that requires that this poor kid be kept in prison? Like, what is the emergency there? Like, what was the consequence if he gets let out? No, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I just feel so bad for this kid. But it is ridiculous because there wasn't really any. They just filed. It was a very basic motion. There wasn't really any detail. It was just, you know, stay the release pending the outcome of the appeal. Now, Kevin, well, the emergency is because he's about to be let out, right? Yeah. I mean, that's it's not well, that's, you know, yeah. emergency. Something terrible is going to happen. It's emergency. It's going to be out in 48 hours. Yeah. So you gotta hurry uh, up of course, emergency just means the timeline. Like we only have this much time. I, I get that. But they really just seem very bound and determined 
to keep him in prison, like really determined, yeah. like there's something in it for them to keep him there. Right. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's probably they feel it's their duty. I mean, I think uh, and like you said, you were quoted in a, a really great uh, article in a recent issue of Standard Issue magazine talking about these wrongful convictions. And I think you're right. I think a lot of the prosecutors and the cops that get up every morning and go to work don't feel like, you know, I'm going out today to screw somebody. They think that what they're doing is right and within the bounds of the Constitution, sometimes they just get it wrong. But they also feel like this is my duty to make sure that this happens. So I, I never sort of like think, oh, well, this is being vindictive that the state is moving to oppose bail for Adnan or for Brendan Dassey. I don't see it as a personal thing. It's part of what their job is, although the rest of us probably disagree with it. It's just sort of the way the wheels of justice move. They do not turn fast. Well, if you think about, though, the way the justice system is set up, and this is something that came up, actually, at the addendum taping. Um, Dennis Robinson, who is on the undisclosed team, is also a a JAG JAG attorney. And he just made the really good point that the criminal justice system is set up. Sometimes the officials are elected. Sometimes prosecutors and judges are elected. Sometimes they are, you know, appointed or it's their job. The whole system is set up. And tallied by wins, not tallied by justice. It's not tallied by truth. It's tallied by wins. How many cases have you won? And that determines whether or not you get reelected or reappointed or, you know, or whether or not you get to stay in that, you know, prosecutor job because you work for a DA who might not want you if you don't tally up a lot of wins. That is what the system is based on. And as Laura has said in this podcast many times, these are competitive people who take these jobs. But that's what the system is is built on. You know, it's unfortunate in someone like Brandon Dassey's case that that is the scoring system because they could end up winning on appeal if they take it to appeal. But they also know that keeping him in prison gives them an advantage on appeal. I mean, there's a lot of data to show that, like, if somebody is in prison, they're not out. Their trial outcomes are not as good, typically, if they're incarcerated during trial. Yeah. So, Kevin. Yes. You have an update. Yeah, mine is on the podcast breakdown and the Justin Ross Harris case. And first of all, can I just say, Bill Rankin has really grown on me. (laughs) Wait, you didn't like him to begin with? No, I should say that, no, I I would say I thought he was fine and he was like, this is good for a newspaper guy. But I really think he's kind of found his voice and he really found a very interesting case in the Justin Ross Harris case. And as you recall, this is the trial about a man who left his... 22-month-old son, Cooper, in the back seat of his car on a hot day. And while he said it was he forgot about it, at the same time, he also had this double life where he was sexting and was doing all sorts of... Uh, gross. Deviant sexual <laughs> behavior. Uh, gross. Gross, yeah. I mean, <laughs> stuff that would make, you know, that would certainly make him come off looking like a creep. So that he was charged with several counts. In addition to there were like related counts, there were counts that were related to the sexting because one of the people that he sexted was a girl who was under 16. Yep. And, you know, it's yet to be known whether or not he knew that or whatever. But but that was part of the trial. He was charged with felony murder and malice murder, right. which is the, the harsher charge. So the jury came back and he was convicted on all counts, including malice murder. Yeah. And as Bill Rankin said, you know, sometimes the law has some poetry in it. And in order to get a conviction in Georgia on the malice murder charges, the defendant had to act with malice in his heart. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting about this whole case has been 
that it's not a whodunit. It's not whether we got the right guy. It really comes down to his intentions. Mm-hmm. Did he intentionally leave him in the backseat of the car so that he could get out of his relationship with his wife? No. <laughs> Sorry, was that me saying what I yeah, thought? Yeah, you know, I, 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 Rankin was very even-handed. And what I liked about this podcast is it, it wasn't just a recap. I mean, it was a lot of buildup and a lot of background and the law and the case before we even got to trial. The venue was moved, and so we lost the whole summer, and it came up again in this this fall in a new jurisdiction. But it wasn't just a weekly roundup of what happened in court. It was certainly you know longer quotes, much more context. Um, great experts. Great experts to talk about really what's going good on. Really explanation about legal inside court proceedings. And also a lot of interesting case investigative details like that cop who lied, there, changed his story. There was an awful lot that sort of poisoned the well about what this was about because right. there were things uh, which, again, the cops backed off on by not bringing up at trial. Things like saying, oh, he was researching how to live a child-free life. There right. was a thing on not Reddit. Not true. Yeah. Not true. There were text messages and the things that, that were attributed to him were actually things that people put were sending to him. They moved very quickly as far as putting some bad stuff out there. Right. Absolutely. Is he a creep? Absolutely. Do I feel like after everything I've listened to, if I were on that jury, I would have convicted him on the murder charges? I don't think so. You know, this is a common enough tragedy that they run public service announcements in Georgia to remind people not to do this. Right. And so if you're going to criminalize this one case and not say it's all the other ones are accidents, but this one is criminal because he was doing other things that were either illegal or at the very least despicable, then, you know, I don't know. I mean, if I got into a car accident with uh, a baby in the back seat and the baby was killed, that would be an accident. If I were drunk when I did it, I could be charged with vehicular homicide. I'll tell you what my issue is with it is that he liked the girlfriend experience. He liked to have a lot of sex. Who cares? doesn't make you a bad father. It doesn't make you a murderer. A lot of good parents aren't good at their relationships. You know what I mean? I don't like how the relationship and like the violation of what's seen as the norms of a relationship are brought into the right or wrong of other facets of somebody's life. I just don't think it's okay. I guess I have a hard time like figuring out how you could, without a reasonable doubt, put yourself in that person's mind that he decided to do it. You know what I'm saying? I, I just don't know how you could be so confident that you would know his intentions, that you would be able to convict him. Mm-hmm. I think the only way you get to that is because of this other stuff, he seems like the kind of guy who would have. Because beyond that, I don't, they wouldn't want me on a juror as a juror on a trial where it basically all hinged on what somebody's intention was. Cause I don't think I would ever feel real confident in that unless there, unless he like wrote it down on a, a piece of paper, what he was going to do or something. In right. It's not just trying to figure out his intention. He left evidence. Right. So I, that to me is a tough one and it doesn't make me feel good to know that he was convicted of that just in that it seems like you have to make a a few leaps and it's the kind of leaps I wouldn't want people making if I was on trial for something. You know, I'll just give you the two big pieces of evidence, the one that would lean towards guilt and the one that would lean towards innocence. One of the details that they brought up was that after lunchtime, he had purchased a, a bunch of light bulbs from Home Depot and he went back to his car he opened the door to his car and threw the bag 
of uh, light bulbs in. And there was a lot of examination, and the jury wanted to see the videotape again, trying to determine whether or not, through his line of sight, whether or not he could have seen into the back seat. The original cops had said he had stuck his head like all the way into the car, but the video showed that he he did not put his head into the car. But that's sort of a question there. I think that the jurors, based on sort of the questions that they were asking, thought that that was damning. Right. The, the piece of evidence to me that says, I don't think this is what was going on, was the fact when his wife, his ex-wife testified. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. I will say if you listen to only one episode of that podcast, listen to that one. She was somebody who was cheated on and embarrassed and humiliated in front of the world and still does not believe. And and still, the cops were still kind of winking that, well, maybe she's still a suspect. Right. You know, they were, weren't really playing fair with her. She said their relationship sexually had, had cooled off and that there were problems in the marriage. And at one point, and this wasn't after like a, a fight where there were dishes broken and whatnot. She just turned to him and said, do you want a divorce? Now, if the, the prosecution's case is, the only thing standing between Justin Ross Harris and his life of debauchery is the fact that he is married and he's got Cooper. The idea of I need to kill Cooper so that I could he's already doing all the stuff he, he wants was to do. He's bringing women to his house. He was already doing all of that <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah. The wife just gave him a pass. Mm-hmm. And so if he wants to leave that life, he's got the open door. He doesn't need to go to the lengths of killing his son that he appears to love very much. Right. So that's the thing that swung me. I thought that that was, you know, more powerful than the other evidence. And I will just say to wrap this up as a father, I'm horrified, but I can see myself doing something that absent minded. Hey, Laura, how many times have you uh, been driving someplace and accidentally like made the wrong turn because you're so used to going someplace else? Oh, I've done that, especially if I'm listening to something on the radio or if I'm having a conversation. I'll be like, oops, I was supposed to turn there and I'm still driving down the opposite. Yeah, I've done that a lot. Yeah. I mean, we just get stuck in these patterns and that's, you know, how it goes. Yeah. All right. So one final true crime podcast update. The Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago a couple weeks ago, Julie Snyder from Serial was there. I remember that name. And she gave a talk, and she talked about some of the production stuff behind Serial. She talked about, you know, why Serial Season 2 was so different than Serial Season 1. And she also broke some news about what the Serial team is planning. So it turns out we are going to get our Serial Season 3 next summer. Mm. But before that, in March, which if you look at your calendars, we'll be before you know it, we're going to get a serial spinoff, an untitled project scheduled to launch. It's a seven-part podcast about a man who despises the Alabama town he's lived in his entire life <laughs> and tries to do something about it. It involves a murder investigation that leads to strange relationships and a hunt for hidden treasure. So I did a little digging. I found some historical cases of some possible hidden treasure in Alabama, but I have a theory. Uh-huh. I could be crazy. My theory is that somehow the podcast, the real timeness of it, may lead to listeners looking for a treasure. When you say hidden treasure, do you, do you think they literally mean hidden treasure? I don't know. I mean, there are stories now in the United States. There's a guy in Texas who has a treasure that he's been trying to like, and he's been dropping clues trying to get people to find. Yeah. There's this guy, John Willie Smith. This was a historical case I found. Uh, pa- apparently in Alabama, before he died, buried $100,000 worth of gold. So people think the gold could have been buried anywhere, perhaps in different locations. But 
maybe this podcast will spur a real life treasure hunt and that would be freaking cool. I think maybe they're looking for one eye Willie, the pirate's treasure chest. <laughs> and the three of us get that. But because Toby has never seen Goonies, he has no <laughs> idea what we're talking about. Sorry, we left out of that one, Toby. What, Toby, Sorry, what, Toby, what do you think of this uh, story idea? And do you think my, my theory could hold water? Or do you think I'm being crazy? Uh, I think it would be cool, uh, especially since my in-laws live in Alabama. I could go down and visit them Ooh. and go digging for treasure. That guy in Texas, I think, has gotten into some trouble in that some of the clues have led people into fairly dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Like a Pokemon Go? No, I mean, like, you got to go up this mountain oh. and look Across these train tracks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I think I read an article about that. The easy-to-find hidden treasure is never worth it. So, Kevin, what do you think of this idea for the Serial I, Season 3? I really like it. I just I wonder who the, the host will be. You know, the voice of it. So much of Serial's particular tone is I have is a theory Sarah. about that, too. You do have a theory? Yes. I'm going to say it's Starly Kine. And the, re- the reason from I- From the mystery- From the mystery sh- show. Show, which is And the reason I think air. that is because I know that Starly Kine is now a consulting producer on season three of Serial as well. Oh. I wrote another story where they've brought her in to help work the story of, of that season, because she is a really gifted story craft- person, I think she is going to be the host of this uh, serial spinoff. That's my guess. Well, I, I like it, and I can't I can't wait for us to spend seven or eight weeks talking about what they're doing at uh, the offices of This American Life. The only issue is that when you take any story, it's always a roll of the dice, whether it's going to be something good. You know, talking about rolling of dice, it's just like playing Pass the Pigs <laughs> by winning move games. Pass the Pigs! It's the classic game of chance from the 1980s. It's still around. That you, we all have now. I know. We've all been playing Pass the Pigs. <laughs> players roll. If you haven't, you've never done this, you players roll two pig-shaped dice. So gotta do and they score points on how they land now rebecca if the pig lands on his nose what's that i don't remember i look at the box every time it's a leaning jowler it's a snouter snouter. it's a snouter 10 points how about two pigs on their back uh a kevin flynn oh shut up it's a double razor back (laughs) it's a double razor back yes and uh you can just keep rolling just don't get piggish (laughs) because you could roll the pig out and lose all of your points this is a great party game is perfect for adults it's good for kids, it's good for the whole family, and Past the Pigs is an ideal holiday travel, accoutrement, and a delightful stocking stuffer, too. Ready for this? These pint-sized porkers pack a big punch. <laughs> I do love a game that doesn't have a lot of stuff, and this game is like you could put it in your purse. Exactly. Yeah. It's it got is a, a great origin story. Really? Tell that? us. No, tell us. They wrote it up. It's in the little brochure. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, so. It's like the people of Piglandia or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call You up. and Jack Pigfellow. Ah. They're the spokespeople of Pass the Pig. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Pass the Pigs is available at toy stores everywhere, but for a special 20% discount, visit winning-moves.com and enter promo code CRIME, crime. now. So that's winning moves. Dot com and promo code crime, crime. for a 20% discount. Oink, oink. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, there have been a ton of new true crime podcasts that have premiered this past month. We will eventually get to all of them, especially now that we have to wait till next summer before Serial Season 3. But we know there's only so much we can listen to, so we're going to take them one by one. The CBC has come out strong with a podcast looking at the unsolved murder of an indigenous woman in a small fishing town. It's called Missing and Murdered. 
Host Connie Walker shows us her investigation and names names in the 1989 case of Alberta Williams. The crime is set against the backdrop of Canada's infamous Highway of Tears, where more than three dozen women have been killed or have vanished. Of course, Missing and Murdered was a Toby recommendation. Uh, But before we talk about it, let's hear from someone who spent a little more time thinking about this story than we have. My name is Connie Walker, and I'm the host of Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? And I'm also a a reporter for CBC News in Toronto. And you are also an Indigenous woman. That's right. I'm Cree (laughs) from Saskatchewan. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about right away is that you do really bring your personal story into this podcast. And we can talk about, you know, the story a little bit in a second. But was that hard, you know, telling your personal story and making that personal connection to this story when that's not something typically journalists do? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for sure. And and it's absolutely, you know, not something that I would do in a regular CBC News segment for television or radio. But I think the podcast format kind of gives you the space to kind of weave those kinds of things in, in a way that it felt like, even though it was a difficult thing to to talk about and, and to bring in, it felt like it was natural in some ways as well. You do say at the beginning of the podcast in episode one, you say, you know, sometimes you choose a story and sometimes a story chooses you. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were talking about, that this was the right story for you to tell, that you could tell it differently or maybe with a little bit more, I don't know, personal, uh, more of a personal touch than another reporter might be able to do? I feel like I said that this is the right story for the right person at the right time for a number of reasons. For, For me in my career, I'm at the point where I was feeling comfortable to include that. But also these stories are just starting to be told that for a long time there was no interest in in hearing about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I remember pitching my first story about this issue 10 years ago when a girl that I knew from back home had gone missing. And I heard about her disappearance in an email chain that her family and community was sending around trying to get attention. And it was the same summer that a young blonde white woman from Uh, Markham, Ontario, went missing, and her disappearance was covered all over national news. It was in the newspapers and on the newscasts. And there were so many similarities between these two disappearances, but Amber's story wasn't even covered by the local news at the time. And I remember pitching a story, because I was working in in the national newsroom at the time, pitching a story about these two disappearances and kind of examining the way that the media covers these stories. And my executive producer at the time said, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? Huh. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, there was no there was no interest. And so I never did that story. But now, 10 years later, it's been my beat, for, which is a terrible thing. But for the last two years, I've been exclusively focused almost on telling stories from Indigenous communities, but in particular, stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Now, your podcast is framed around the murder of Alberta Williams. She was 24 years old. She went missing in 1989, and three weeks later, her body was found. You begin the story by talking about how it came to you. You got a tip from a former cop who was investigating Mm -hmm. the case who's now retired. It was interesting to me, you know, a lot of true crime stories, they open with the victim, or they open with some aspect of the crime, the discovery of the body. You open with an investigator who is Mm. frustrated and, you know, really determined to continue to help, even though he's no longer actively on the case. How surprised were you 
to right out of the gate have this incredible source to tell this story. I was shocked because, you know, I I have been reporting on other cases um, that are unsolved. And in those instances, like the RCMP won't tell you anything, essentially, than what they would put in a press release. You know, this person was last seen here. They were wearing this, like very basic details. And here was an investigator who had, you know, who probably knew the most about this case than anyone and was speaking freely about it. I, I was so surprised when when he sent the email and then when he agreed to talk to us about it. It was something that I certainly was would never have expected to to have happen. And it's been a really interesting story because it also runs counter to the narrative we always hear about these cases, because we've done a lot of reporting on how the police do not take these cases seriously, the cases of, of missing Indigenous women or um, women who who have died. Sometimes their cases are closed, their family feels prematurely or closed and deemed a suicide or no foul play suspected despite really suspicious circumstances. So I've done a number of those stories where families criticize the police. And here was kind of, you know, the opposite of that, where there's this former investigator who's now retired and 30 years later is still thinking about this case that he was never able to solve. That was one of the things that has really been sticking out to me is that We do often hear, especially I think the current narrative of some of the better true crime podcasts are about how the police haven't done their due diligence or about how prosecutors haven't done their due diligence in pursuing the truth and pursuing justice. It sounds like, for the most part, this investigation into Alberta Williams' death, I mean, I think you have uncovered a couple of holes, but it does sound like it was worked. They did their door knocking. They interviewed suspects. This wasn't one of those things, you know, as we heard in the dark, if you've heard that podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, you have found one person who was never interviewed, but it wasn't one of those things where, like, nobody was interviewed. This is a cop who took diligent notes. You know, there are multiple people working on the case. It sounds, though, when you're telling the story, the longer thread about the missing and murdered Indigenous women, that these cases aren't typically pursued. So how big a problem is this? Like, how many women are we talking about and over what period of time? Well, I mean, that number is up for debate. I mean, the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, had a, issued a report a few years ago that said there were 1,182 women um, in a specific period since the, the 80s, I believe. But advocates believe that number is actually closer to 4,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, a huge issue in Canada that's been underreported for, for decades. And now there is a national inquiry that's uh, just ramping up here, trying to get to the bottom of the root causes of this issue and, and why this is still continuing to happen in Canada. But just getting back to your point about this, this seems like a case that was really well investigated. It's really interesting because Gary Kerr, the police officer, not only did he want to do an interview with us and tell us about this case and about how they worked this case, but he actually also gave us access to his police notebooks that from the time. That blew my mind when I heard that. <laughs> that blew my mind. Because I'll tell you, police notes, as you say in the podcast, are the most valuable thing to look at when you are reporting or writing about a crime because they were there and, and you can really get inside their head and get their reactions. And that was really astonishing. It is astonishing. So we have these notebooks that he wrote, like notes that he wrote from the time from Alberta's disappearance to months, months after her body was found when they were still 
looking at certain things. And that's actually the focus of the next episode, because we didn't have a chance to really look at them while we were out there talking to people. Like people just started coming forward and we kind of just kept pulling the thread or the yarn. And we, we ended up where we end up in episode six. But in episode seven, we actually go back and in depth read through Gary's notebooks, what we can actually read because his <laughs> writing is atrocious. Like We sound like we're learning to read again when we're actually trying to read some of some of his notes. That's partly why we, we got him to do the voice memos and read them for us. But we are able to, you know, kind of uncover some things that were a bit surprising for us, I think, when, when we took a second look at his his notebooks. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and and, you know, here 27 years later, you know, certain information has bubbled to the surface that maybe when you are an investigator on the ground in 1989, you know, you, you, there are so many other things that, that you're you're looking at or looking into. But it's interesting to see what did or didn't get investigated based on his notebooks. And the other thing about the notebooks is that because this is an open investigation, you know, this police file is open. And so the RCMP on the record won't tell us anything about Alberta's case and where it's at now. But the one thing that's interesting is that the RCMP officers keep their notebooks hmm. after they retire because they might have to testify in an unsolved case. And investigators who are working on Alberta's case right now, if there are investigators working on Alberta's case right now, they don't have access to Gary's notebooks. That's they really only have access yeah. to the police file huh. and anything that was you know, submitted from his notes that made it into the police file. But there are some things, I'm sure, that are in his notebooks that aren't in the police file right now. Are you a TV and a radio reporter? Do you do reporting across yeah. both media? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm mostly television, but I have been doing radio in the last few years. One of my favorite things that reporters are doing in the podcast medium is they are explaining how journalism works. I mean, there really is something that separates a DIY, you know, uh, true crime storyteller from a journalist telling not just a true crime story, but really any story. And you deliberately explain why you can and can't do certain things or why you're making certain choices. You talk about going and talking to the journalistic standards person at the CBC. You talk about why you bleeped out uh, a suspect's name early in the series. And you also talk about why you can't share some of the information that Gary has sort of given you access to, you know, the crime solving ethics around that. Are you enjoying being able to infuse this story with some journalism lessons? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I would approach it in any other way, because, I mean, it's definitely rooted in in the journalism for us. I mean, we were working with our CBC News colleagues, obviously, in the investigative unit on this podcast. So it's it's definitely rooted in, in the journalism. And it's been interesting, though, because I think for so many of the investigations that we've done in the past, it's all focused on the end, right? CBC News has learned X about a specific case or about a specific story. And the thing that I love about the podcast format is that the journey is part of the story mm -hmm. and that we can be transparent about what we're learning is unfolding. And that's something that's kind of scary on one hand because you know, you're being transparent in a way that journalists typically aren't, or maybe we've assumed people aren't interested in for whatever reason. But it's also exciting. And I and I it's going to be weird after the podcast is over to go back and then, you know, file a, a regular report for the national, for example, or which is our national newscast here at CBC. I mean, I don't know if I can say I've been 
enjoying it because it's been a very challenging story on so many levels. But I, you know, I have been enjoying aspects of it for sure. But it's it's hard. I've never done a radio documentary before. So why not eight in a row? Right. (laughs) Why not? Now, how real time is the reporting in the podcast? Well, we started we started ahead, but we wanted to be able to respond to things as they came up. So we started with four episodes complete. And then we've had this kind of buffer as the weeks have gone on, which has rapidly diminished. (laughs) So now we're basically we finished episode six today and it's going out tomorrow. And we have gotten some new tips from people who we hadn't heard from before the podcast started airing. So we're actually going to take a week to pause and and take a look at some of those tips and and see how and if we can incorporate them and where they lead us for for the last few episodes. So this part of the process, very often when you're reporting a story for TV, this is when you're finding out if there's there there, but you already have content out there. And so you're discovering that as you go. Are you terrified there's not going to be any there there when you get to the end of this? No, I'm no, not not terrified. No. I mean, I think that part of this story for me has obviously been about Alberta's case and and trying to find out the truth about what happened to her and if there can be a development that would be um, amazing. But the bigger part of it has also been about the bigger issues of missing and murdered Indigenous women and kind of helping people connect the dots about why this is such a horrific phenomenon in Canada and where those roots are. And so I already feel like, you know, throughout the process and in, in the various episodes where we've been able to kind of provide the context that people need to understand some of these bigger issues, you know, I, I, I listen to Serial, I listen to other podcasts that don't like wrap things up in a little bow. And I think that's okay for me, at least. And I hope it's okay for our listeners if if that doesn't happen. Obviously, it would be amazing if it it did. But I think I have to just think about the bigger picture a little bit when I think about where we're going to end up. Well, one huge advantage you have, too, is that you're taking us places we wouldn't otherwise go. And most of us are never going to fly in a tiny plane you know, to northern I do, Canada. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, I have one question for you about detail of the case. Now, we hear you talking with Gary, and he's telling you details of the crime. He talks about Alberta's cause of death being horrific, that she had a horrible death, and he says that he can't give you the cause of death, at least on tape. To me, that sounds like the cause of death is either unique in nature or evidentiary in nature, that the cause of death is actually something that would help solve the case? Were they able to have a good suspect? I mean, do you know the answer to that question? Is it unique or is it evidentiary? Is that something that you can speak to without getting into any of the details that you can't share? You know, that was really interesting because Gary didn't want to tell us about it, but it had been reported in other places. So I wasn't like I didn't know where that information had come from. So I don't actually know, you know, if if for him that was considered holdback information or not. But I, I don't think that it was he didn't explain at least why he he wouldn't release that information to us at the time. But I did see it reported in other places, the the exact cause of death. And so it's been a bit of a, a weird line because we have this police officer who is our, our primary source for the criminal investigation, not confirming that and, and wondering how and if we needed to include it. I think that we, what we were able to include was relevant and gave people the information they need about about Alberta's death. But that's something that that still is a bit of a, a mystery about why he wasn't forthcoming about that in particular. I think it's interesting. And I think it really kudos to you for not including it because you couldn't verify it. I mean, it's not 
I think that sometimes people don't understand that because something has been reported, it doesn't necessarily mean either that it should have been reported or that it's true. I mean, it also depends on what the source was and, and so forth. Another thing that Gary says to you on tape that we hear in the podcast is that his theory of the crime, he believes Alberta's death was a one-off killing by the person he believes who killed her, that it was perhaps an unintentional death. And he made it sound like perhaps after a sexual assault or something that it was sort of like to keep you quiet, I have to kill you. But he believes that person has not been violent again. After doing the reporting that you're doing, are you finding more evidence to support Gary's theory of the crime or to refute Gary's theory of the crime? Yeah, that's that's tricky because we in our investigation, we are uncovering things that Gary and then Rick, who's the other RCMP officer who worked with Gary on Alberta's case, um, who we did also interview. We are finding things that Gary and Rick didn't investigate at the time. So whether or not if they had investigated it, it would have gone somewhere or if it would have changed their theory, I think that we're we're maybe raising those questions. But, you know, it's difficult at this point for us to say, you know, how that would have impacted his theory or, or his investigation. That's something that we're going to talk to him about again uh, in the final episode, though, because so much of what we've done after, I think, episode four you know, we've touched base with him, but he's actually learning about it like everyone else is who's listening to the podcast. So so in episode six that's out tomorrow, for example, we're chasing down this rumor, essentially story that we heard about Alberta being seen in another city the day after Gary and Rick believed that she had disappeared and the day after they believed she had been killed. So if it was true, it would mean that Alberta would, would have still been alive on the Saturday. And that's something that Gary will, when the podcast comes out, he'll be learning about for the first time. So we're definitely going to check in with him at the at the end of the podcast, as well as some of the other things that we've been able to pull out of the notebooks and continue to investigate even though it's been 27 years that they didn't seem to take a closer look at at the time. Now, is there something that you're hoping audiences will take away from this podcast? You know, you, I, I know that it's important to you to continue to raise awareness about the stories of these missing and murdered Indigenous women. I think that your history of, you know, what happened in Canada with your Indigenous population and the residential schools has been really fascinating. It's actually, I think, for me, built some empathy um, for people that we might otherwise just regard as as violent. What else are you hoping people will take away, just aside from those, you know, very fundamental things that you've talked about in the podcast? I think the the big thing for us in all of our reporting on on missing and murdered Indigenous women has been to, you know, tell the single story of, of a woman in a way that humanizes these stories because in so much of the reporting, it focuses on the sheer volume, the 1,200 or the 4,000 number. And it's just so important to know that every single one of these women had a family and a community that loved them, that they left behind and who still mourn their death. And I think that you know, we haven't heard these stories for so long in, in Canada or anywhere. And so I think that what's so important to me was to give Alberta's family and friends the space to talk about her as a person and to tell and, and share with us, you know, who she was and show just how much she's loved and still missed, even though it's been 27 years. Like, this is not something that's gone away for them. Connie Walker, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me about Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams. I'm really, really enjoying the podcast, and I cannot wait to hear what happens next. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Missing and Murdered, the podcast opens right out of the gate with a great source, and that's a cop. You know, it made me realize that Serial didn't even have a cop. Um, Laura, I'd love your take on this. What did you think about the fact that it turns out the source that brought Connie the story was a retired cop named Gary? What, what do you think of him? What do you think of him being the primary source for the story? You know, it kind of surprised me because I feel like police officers don't generally come forward in a case like this, especially a case they've worked on if it's still open. So I was a little bit in the beginning, I was like, ah, oh, this guy, I wasn't so sure like how credible he was going to be because it just seemed like it, it seemed odd to me. But then as he got going, I'm like, this is, you know, it's amazing that he was willing to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously still that invested in the case. But, you know, I could tell as it was going on, there's certain things he didn't want to talk about because he wanted to maintain the integrity of the investigation because it was still an open case. So I think that, you know, having somebody like that, that actually has some chops behind them coming forward with this information is definitely, you know, a really good jumping off point as opposed to somebody, you know, we've all gotten calls from people that have some big story to tell us and you're like, uh, really? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I thought it was great. And I I think it's um, really interesting as the series goes on that they're starting to uncover things that he may not have known about. Right. Now, Kevin, you have talked to retired investigators about cases they worked and didn't solve, but typically they don't want to still go on the record with what it is that they may know. Yeah, this is true. And I guess he's retired, right? He's still not... He's retired. Not with the the Mounties, uh, but an invaluable resource. Right. You know, no doubt. I mean, not only just he was the the spark that got this podcast investigation going, but, you know, he he definitely has, you know, years worth of experience and knowledge in the case and has done a lot of the interviews already. And and so it certainly gives a starting point for Connie. Now, Toby, you've long been wanting to hear a podcast that dives into a larger social issue. And this one really brings it. And we even have an indigenous reporter telling the story of these this larger story of thousands and thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women. But I'd love to hear your take. I mean, this larger story, she brings in the residential schools. she, She brings in her own personal story of violence in her own family and the origin story of that. Given all of that, you know, is this why you love this podcast, Toby? Yeah, I, I think so. Although I, d- I don't want to sort of downplay the the sort of other parts, her reporting, the crime investigation, things like that. But I do think the the way you can generalize between the United States and Canada, but the way Native Americans slash Indigenous people, and particularly women, have been treated in 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 both countries, you know, it's sort of it's beyond abysmal. Uh, it, it's it's really pretty shocking. And I think that if people knew more, I think there would be more outrage about it. So I think that's one of the things that I like about this is, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting choice that she took somebody who clearly is not part of what may be a serial killer or several serial killers working in that area and, and targeting indigenous women. And at first I was... I kind of wondered if that was the right choice, but kind of seeing how it's played out a little bit and, and sort of the, the insight you get into the culture, I think it does make sense. And I was, I didn't, I didn't realize this. I, I had done some research probably about a dozen years ago into Indian schools in America. And I, I was looking at a place called the Carlisle school, which was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. 
uh, in the late 1800s. And it was the same, you know, it sounded like the same basic idea of the ones in Canada, which is that they would take uh, Native American kids and basically, I think the quote is, uh, kill the Indian to save the man. That's right. So they would try and take that culture away from them and turn them into essentially, you know, white Americans. And just that the 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 death rates were, were super high. So then to find out that this was, this was going on as late as the 1960s. It was, last school was shut in 1996, I believe she said. Yeah, because I, I, there is right now, I, there was actually a, a news story in the, in the paper today about there's a $1.3 billion class action lawsuit against the Canadian government for what they call the the 60s scoop was when they took a lot of these these kids away from their parents. Remember, that's Canadian dollars, too. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's more like 1.13. 1. Um, and, and, you know, the government's fighting it, yeah. um, saying that while we wouldn't do it now, that, in fact, it was uh, acceptable for the laws as they were then. Yeah, we wouldn't do it and, now, now that you have lawyers. Hmm. Right. And awareness. Yeah, awareness. So, it, you know, it, and then it just as far as indigenous women go, you know, between I think it was 1975 and 2015, you know, in, in the United States, reservation authorities did not have authority over non-Indians. Mm-hmm. So you could be a white man living on a reservation with a Native American wife and basically do whatever you want to her, mm-hmm. you know, because there, wow. there was no... There was no authority. It was basically carte blanche. They do know that there were serial, both killers and serial sexual assaulters who took advantage of the fact that they knew that there was no jurisdiction over Yeah, that them. they could go to a reservation and commit crimes. And it wasn't until 2015 that there was authority given for crimes committed on reservations by Caucasians. One of the objections was, you know, if you have a white guy who gets caught for this, he, he should have a jury of his peers. And the thought was, you know, having a bunch of Native Americans on a jury is not would not be his peers. Right, right. It, all, it, it just brings up the insanely racist. It also just brings up the like crazy, crazy uh, world of the fact that these reservations exist at all. I mean, it's a, it's an insane system that we set up just to sort of marginalize an entire group of people. And a novel I'd recommend, by the way, that speaks to a lot of these issues is The Roundhouse by Louise Ehrlich. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing novel about a crime committed against a Native American woman on reservation and the uh, legal stuff around it. It's just wonderful, wonderful, beautifully written book. Laura, we just heard Toby say that, um, you know, he and his head, and I think mine did it too, initially sort of went to our serial killers at work here. But mm-hmm. she's sort of telling a bigger story about patterns of violence in the community sort of and and I think she draws the line from the residential schools and the marginalization to those patterns of violence what do you think about this huge huge number of murdered and missing indigenous women thousands is what um, Connie just told me in that interview there that's just unbelievable it's unbelievable when you hear her talking about how you know when she was initially trying to pitch stories about this they said oh what another sad Indian story or whatever and it's just you know I don't know what the you know the climate was that allowed this to go on without anybody really it doesn't sound like anybody really was going to do anything about it so it's it's really awful to hear about and you know when I'm listening to this and thinking you know she chose to tell this story as opposed to say like a you know serial killer or multiple murders I like this better because I feel like she's really taking us inside a very small 
community where everybody knows everybody or, you know, there's a lot of people that are related. It's a very small town. And you really start to get the sense of how small it is as she's going along. Like she's trying to find somebody. Oh, well, they're here with me. Why don't you come over? And they it's, oh, they didn't tell you about this. So it seemed to me like as I'm listening to this, the people within that community, I think, know what happened. Hmm. But I don't feel like for whatever reason, that has really been brought out to a point that they could get resolution in this case. Now, Kevin, there's a lot of transparency in this podcast, and I'm, I'm wondering how well you like it, because Connie's a TV reporter, mm-hmm. and that's her you know, that's her regular work that she does is TV report. I think we hear a lot of TV reporter <laughs> stuff. Well, she has a photog with her. A photog, she's yeah. in a van. Yes, um, a van. <laughs> you know, it, it yeah. really, it sounds more like the work you used to do, yeah. that practice of sort of waiting outside somebody's house till they get home. Yeah, there is a lot of transparency in it. Some, I, I will just say, sometimes it seems a little pedantic with, uh, you know, going on and on about like how you're waiting and stuff like that. It informs, but it doesn't entertain always. Mm, right. But I do. Wait, are you talking about the transparency where she's talking to her editor? Are you talking about the transparency well, I, where she's just going through the waiting no, I, for the guy? I, I like the fact that we hear about, you know, the, you know, they talk to the editor about this. Can we just go and sort standards of bum rush practices. standards and practices? I love that stuff. You know, they, they're very comfortable saying, look, there was a problem with this audio. You know, I'm thinking back the the day where they're hanging out at Jack Little's house mm-hmm. and, you know, it's a, a whole day of waiting for him. Nothing was happening in real life. So nothing was really happening in that part of the episode. Right. And, you know, it didn't seem sort of dramatic or tense. But then we do hear but, her, like, ambush him the way but, that TV exactly. reporters do. Have you ever done that to anybody? Uh, yes. How's it feel? Not good. <laughs> Scary? And I did it, and I did it in Alabama. <gasps> And I didn't know, and this is the standards and practices thing, I didn't know what the state law was on that. Hmm. I had to walk into a restaurant with cameras rolling, and, ne- and I never do that, never do that. But it was kind of like, we sent your ass to Alabama, Flynn, you're going to go in <laughs> and you're going to walk out with that. So I do appreciate a, a, a lot of what the reporting is. Can we just talk about, like, the uh, the murderer is beep, beep? Yeah, I was going to go there next, because that, the, that was the initial conceit, was that she didn't want to say the name, and she said, Why? And granted, we there are the, we listen but to this. But then does it in episode three? I don't. Get she does it in the same episode. She talks about who was his. His name is included in the same episode in which she beeps out his name as sure, a suspect. Sure. And I was in the car with you, and I heard beep beep, and then I heard the name Jack Little. I'm like, that's it. It was two short beeps. <laughs> it wasn't Jebediah just Nekasekovitz. You know, it was like the beep was too short. You did call it. You called it right away mm-hmm. as soon as she was naming the people at the table. You knew it was Jack Little that his name had been beeped out. What do you think of that? That is, I will of all the podcasts that we've listened to, that is a differentiator right there because to actually name names, mm-hmm. and there's a lot here that you know we talk about Canadian libel law and Canadian standards of professional conduct for journalists. You know, it's obviously very easy to just record a telephone call in Canada. There's no like wiretap, federal wiretap issues. That was surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they'll say you know he hasn't been charged with a crime and whatnot, but I mean it's pretty clear that that's at this point in our story arc that that's who we're supposed to be looking at. Right, this individual. That's uh, you know I don't know what to make of that. Right. I mean it's it, you know it's obviously that's where you want to go and look at them, but guys, I don't know what do you think when you hear that? Okay, here's a guy and we're going after him. I was kind of surprised. You know, I wanted to know who it was, but I was also kind of cringing a little bit because I was like, 
ooh, that wouldn't fly here. You know, it definitely, it made me a little uncomfortable. Um, But then, I mean, she did give him an opportunity to respond. You know, then his lawyer wouldn't even talk and, and said, you know, leave him alone, basically cease and desist. But it definitely made me a little uncomfortable. I liked what she was saying to him when she was giving him the opportunity to respond. That she was saying, we are doing the story and it would be better Mm -hmm. with you in it. That's the right thing to say. It's the honest thing to say. That's what you said, yeah. Right. Toby, what were you going to say? What about what she's doing wouldn't fly in the U.S.? Well, well, you couldn't. Had, I don't think you could come out and say who somebody, the name of a suspect like that in a case that was ongoing well, in the way that she's doing it. Well, maybe you could. I, guess. I, I feel like could. we see that stuff all the time. No, I think you could. I mean, she's... I guess you could. Yeah, like, I mean... Like, to catch a predator, that's all that is. Right. I mean, I think what she's doing, because the one thing that's interesting to me, too, is that she's also looking at people that aren't Jack Little. Mm-hmm. You know, now, now yeah. it's going out. The, the, net is, the net is being cast a little bit wider now, and she's looking at alternative stuff that the cop didn't think to look at. I mean, my sense of it was, is that if you're going to do the podcast the way she's going to do it it's inevitable that you're going to have to say the name. Like if you're, if you're really investigating this case Mm -hmm. uh, using the detectives, you know, initial uh, nudge in the right direction. I mean, how do you do it without naming names? Toby, you're right. I I think you just, you can't do the podcast without, without doing that. And I think this would be a very different podcast if it wasn't Prince Rupert and it was uh, Portland, Portland, Oregon. Right. I think, well, you know, the mysterious land of Canada that a lot of us U.S. citizens have been Googling for the past (laughs) couple of weeks, those rules are different. And so we are hearing something like when we were listening to to Bowerville. She's taking us to a place we wouldn't otherwise go. Yes. Yeah. And I will say that the, the, the town, the small town, the small little fishing town. Prince Rupert. On uh, you know on the Pacific Ocean, it, it's a stone's throw from Alaska. Mm-hmm. It's you know that far up on the coast there. It has the feeling, even on the on on the podcast, the, the you know the audio radio thing. It has the feeling of being really isolated, right? And small, you know, and it's like oh, we're you know it's it's fishing down into the cannery and everything, and the one place is Popeyes, but everybody also it's knows like Canadian it's Twin Peaks. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's not like I mean there are like islands. In that area where it is, I mean, literally igloos where right. people are living in, and I and I know that we're four white Americans talking about race relations in other countries, and so this is our experience and, and that we're putting on other cultures here. But this is your experience. This is, You're this is our culture. view, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> I, what I'm saying is, don't tweet at us. We get it. We're we're, we're assholes. Okay, but it just you, you know, I think that the setting and the highway of tears is a backdrop. It makes it more different than if it were happening in Edmonton or right. uh, Ontario, somewhere else in Ontario. Or right. Whatever. So here's. Can we just get back to the name for a second? Yeah. Here's why it's okay for me. She named all the people who were there that night, which you would expect somebody who was reporting the story to, to do, right? Who, people were at the table, mm-hmm. and it was like her sister and her friend and her, her boyfriend and, and her uncle, Jack Little, and whatever. And there is no way to tell the story while continuing to beep the name of somebody who is yeah. also a character in that, in that thread. That you have multiple people saying they saw them together later in a truck. As a listener, you would draw that conclusion. And that's what the cop told her his theory was. So she's now like following the trail that she's been given by a member, a former member of law enforcement who's demonstrating some integrity and not wanting to disrupt the investigation. You know, it is interesting that he didn't want to say the manner of death when it had been reported elsewhere, as we heard Connie say. 
Kevin, what did you think of that? Do you think it was because the manner of death is evidentiary in nature? Yeah, there's something about the manner of death. And it leads me to, I guess I could look it up. I'll just admit I haven't Googled what Alberto Williams' manner of, the manner of death. We know the cause, no, the cause of death. The, the manner of death is homicide. The cause of death, we don't know, whether it's strangulation right. or shooting or a combination of things. Just to describe it as, you know, it, it just, your mind cannot stop wondering what nefarious way it was by the way they described it. And the only thing that, you know, I, I, I can glean is that if there are 40-plus missing women, murdered women along the highway right. of tears, there's the signature of that killing is different from the rest. Now, Laura, are you caught up in this podcast? I am, yes. All right. What do you think of a witness or suspect that refuses to surrender their DNA when asked, when being questioned about a crime like this? And um, what do you think of uh, Connie's producer swiping that cigarette butt? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was interesting. You know, it, it, it makes you feel like you should be suspicious of him, but he may just be somebody who's like, you know, I'm innocent and I shouldn't have to do it. I kind of thought it was great when she stole the cigarette butt because... It reminded me of you, actually. I could imagine you doing that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just having a Nick fit. Yeah, no, I didn't take that. You know, that's what I love with, you know, like we were talking about before, the transparency and the reporting. I love all these little behind-the-scene things that are happening. And I can really relate when she was sitting out there and she was getting nervous about having to wait for Jack to come home. And, you know, we've all probably... I mean, I you know, I can't speak for others, but I know I was very nervous when I've had to call family members of a victim and you know you have to kind of steal yourself up for those things so whether or not that cigarette butt yields anything how I, could it i mean, she, they, I mean they, don't, they don't have a lab <laughs> back yeah, at the office they, they're not following proper evidentiary uh protocol they are putting it in the bag bag it and tag it so um but it was still kind of fun but the fact that the cops uh, two years ago whatever originally asked for a dna sample tells me that they have some sort of evidence from the crime scene to compare the DNA with right. I don't think they're just randomly asking but for is DNA. Connie bringing them I don't think they're going to help with that. Well, no, it's not going to help. No, I mean, <laughs> even if you know, they tested it, and again, you, you, you know, they don't have maybe that sample. And well, in the U.S. anyway, they couldn't intru- the the prosecution couldn't introduce that as evidence that a reporter stole a cigarette. You know, it's it, the chain of custody is all crazy. Laura would have a field day with that, right? Oh, yeah. No, it, it would never go anywhere. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's like, first of all, how many people have touched it? How much transfer DNA? How did they carry it? Where did they put it? I mean, it's it's yeah. But it, it still was kind of a fun little feature. And, and even just she even said the most it could probably prove is that they were together that night. You know, unless, you know, she was found with, you know, a weapon protruding from her body and his DNA is all over that weapon. I don't see how the DNA, you know, how that cigarette butt could actually help. Toby, do you have any unanswered questions uh, as you're listening to Missing and Murdered, things that you're hoping she'll get to as she's telling the story? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I I think, you know, obviously it'll be interesting to see how far she gets into actually determining what happened. But I think, you know, and I think she's done a really good job of of this so far, but I think tying in whatever the conclusion happens to be, or, or even if they don't get a conclusion, but tying that in to social issues concerning indigenous people up there, or just generally the way that crimes against indigenous people are either investigated or not. If you go on Google Maps and take a look at this Highway 16. Oh, I did. I did. I mean, it's it's crazy remote. Yeah. I, the, the idea that 40 women, I, I mean, it's it's got to be a, 
uh, a pretty like outsized percentage of the female population. I mean, these are tiny little villages. Right, and the woods just seem to go on for yeah ever. You've got that, and then you've got this huge population of you know, depending on who you believe, twelve hundred to four thousand, or you know, probably more women who've been killed, and, and it's ongoing. And, and I guess in Canada, it gets more press, but it's outrageous. Well, it sounds like we're all really interested in this story. Toby, good call recommending that we listen to it. And thank you for hooking me up with Connie. She was wonderful. Toby was the one who uh, did that little like connection there, and I really appreciate it. Um, but Thanks gonna... for pulling your weight, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time I did something. I'm going to go around the horn, though, and just kind of get your thoughts um, uh, missing or murdered? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways? Are we, are we, are we voting for missing or are we voting for murder? <laughs> it's not like that. Uh, missing and murdered, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. Will you continue to listen? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I will. Um, you know, it, it started a little slow for me, but once it, it, you know, I got into the fourth and fifth and sixth episode, I was just like, okay, I was binging on it. So I actually, I'm, I'm eager. Um, actually, Laura, I have a question for you along those lines because this is something that came up when Kevin and I were listening. I don't think these podcasts necessarily are designed for binge listening. You know what I mean? Do you think that it puts them at a disadvantage when a person listens to six episodes in a row? Isn't it bound to have pacing issues when you're listening to that much content all at once? I don't know. For me, that's sometimes how I have to do it. So I do end up listening to them all in a row because, you know, I have to be in a, I, I can't do anything else when I'm listening or I completely lose what I've been listening to. So if I have a quiet time and I've got my headphones on and I'm listening, I'll just keep listening to the next episode. All right. So thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. What did you say? Uh, thumbs up. All right. Great. Toby, what about you? What are your thoughts thumb wise about Missing and Murdered? Well, I think obviously it, it, I give it a big thumbs up. It checks off a lot of the boxes of what I look for in a true crime podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to two weeks when the next one comes out. What about you, Kevin? Thoughts? Thumbs up. That's all I got to say. Thumbs up. Can't wait to hear the end of it. All right. Big thumbs up for me, too. And also, loved Connie. What a lovely, lovely Mm. person. TV reporters. I don't know. She had the. She got a lot of depth. I think that CBC knows what they're <laughs> oh, stop doing. Stop now. No, no, no. I'm not saying, but you know, a lot of TV reporters so, yeah, some, don't have the chops to write six hours worth of great content. Some of them are there because content. they look good on camera. Some of them are there because they won a pageant and got a scholarship. I will have to say <laughs> that that sometimes. Like Kevin, Kevin, the, what was your talent? I was in the, the pretty the face. I was the <laughs> eye candy for my TV station. Obviously. No, no. I thought I, you meant you were in the beauty pageant. Like Mr. Stratford County. Yes, this, yes, that's what I <laughs> no, was. No, we know a lot of really, really great TV reporters. We do. Smart some of them people. listen to this podcast. Yeah, you know? some of them do. I know, and some of and them now would you've agree. Alienated yes, them. right. No, 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 no. No, no. no they're the smart ones, obviously. But no. th- hey. they would agree. <laughs> they would agree that there are a couple of pageant and sometimes pageant anchormen. Yes, TV you know? reporter friends who might be listening to this podcast. I'm not talking about you. I promise. No, if they're real TV people, <laughs> they know it's not bullshit. They know it's not them, but they know who in the they know who in the newsroom it is. Yeah, no, and I really just, I like the depth. I like the way that it sounds. I, I'm just really digging it. Looking forward to hearing the rest of it. So now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast. A little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the- oh, shit. <laughs> 
The police in Anchorage, Alaska, are seeking a master of martial arts. Surveillance video captured a man dressed as a ninja breaking into a store and stealing, what else? A ninja sword. <laughs> Seems the crook decided to go full-on crouching tiger-hidden dragon when breaking into the comic book store to take the katana sword. He can't be identified because of his black hood and mask, of course. She's wearing the whole ninja outfit. This sword, by the way, is the only item he took. Detectives are asking for the public's help in reporting any un- other unusual ninja activity. So, panel, a ninja, stealing a ninja sword, is a pretty literal crime. Can you think of any other would-be criminals stealing something so very obvious? Laura, I'm going to go to you first. This is a tough one. I really can't. The only thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was uh, police breaking into a donut shop. Oh, my God. I I just, my brain isn't really functioning this week. What about you, Toby? I think I have no choice but to say... Uh, the Beetlejuice guy stealing a Zagnut bar. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, Nicely very done. good, Toby. Call back, too. Yes. Call back. What about you, Kevin? Uh, okay. Well, I will say, just uh, in real life, I remember reporting a guy named Ronald McDonald breaking <laughs> oh, into I a Wendy's. That. <laughs> I remember that. You do, right? See, I'm not full of BS. Um, I think uh, if you were to catch somebody dressed as Frodo... Uh, breaking into a jewelry store and stealing a ring. Aha, aha. Pretty good. Or somebody named Colonel Mustard being caught stealing a candlestick from a conservatory. Uh, What about a stripper robbing the dollar store? Oh, Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca for the win. (laughs) All right. We should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to find you online and tweet their commiseration for your unending illness, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if our listeners want to commend you on your Beetlejuice Zagnut callback, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NA. All right. (laughs) Toby's got an entourage. What about you, Kev? One of our listeners want to tweet to you. Hold on. Let me get the... Teddy, come down here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm by myself. Okay, it's at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can find us on Twitter at Crime Writers On. You can email us your questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Buy stuff using our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Review the show on iTunes, especially if you love it. And before you close your podcast app, check out our sister show, these are their stories, the Law and Order podcast. You should also check out the Disappearance podcast and Deathcast. Our very handsome line producer is Henry Lavoy. Our theme music was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media. This show. AKA the high tech studio we keep in a closet in our basement. These credits were recorded live during our taping and on behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. <laughs> Can we I do know you will. before we start? Can we do sock club? Because yes. before we forget it, <clears throat> yes. Okay, sock club. Sock sock club. <laughs> sock club. <laughs> this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say this holiday season. Go wait, wait. wait. Is this? Are we doing it for real? Club. Are you just rehearsing? I'm reading what it says. That doesn't really. <laughs> Tell us when it's real. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to say today we're brought to you by. They're going to say it. You actually. Is I'm gonna, that, I'm is that gonna, it? Yeah, I'm only going to say it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by. I can't. Sock club. Was that it? <laughs>
No, no, no that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the instruction for everybody. Yeah, that wasn't it. See, that wasn't it. No, no, that's good. I was a, that was about as much emoting as I can That's do. a lot of emoting. Okay. And lean, just the two of you, just like when you do that. Lean way back from your yeah, mic. you got to lean back from okay. your mic because you're going to be yelling. Back. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. And then that's all you have well. to say. Ready? Okay. This episode is brought to you by... Sock This holiday, give Sock Club! They provide a little gift with a big impact that is sure to make you look like an expert gift giver. Each package includes quality American-made socks, a customizable gift message, and a printable membership certificate, so all you last-minute shoppers are covered, too. Just for listeners of Crime Writers On, Sock Club Club! is offering 15% off subscriptions, so go to... Sockclub.com and use code CRIME at checkout. Give Sockclub! Sockclub! This holiday season. Promo code CRIME. Partners in Crime Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.